Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Say Yes Anyway podcast. These are conversations from the heart where people say yes. Yes to something that they know deep in their heart that they have to say yes to, even if it makes absolutely no sense to anybody or themselves, but there's something in there that's like, yes, I have to. And these stories aren't just inspiring to be like, wow, they're really freaking cool, but how can you take action in your own life? So today I'm really, really excited because I have a new friend here. She's an incredible mother. She's an incredible friend, an incredible wife. And she actually was a part of the Arizona Police Department for 25 years and a human trafficking detective. And I mean, those that do know me, I work in human trafficking. It is the craziest thing in the world. And also, I just believe that there's a lot that people don't know about and or you think that, you know, it's kind of like that movie Taken. If you've seen that movie Taken, that's not really what it's like. So we're going to be discussing a lot of that stuff. So we have Heidi Chance with us here today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, this is fun. Yeah. We're in your beautiful home. Yes. Thank you for having us. <laughs> yes. So I would love to know, first and foremost, what do you love about yourself and your life right now? Well, I love that I am... Uh, I am in a place that I'm supposed to be in. Mm. And I've known that for a long time. I'm definitely um, have been on a path given to me by God and and it's the path that I'm supposed to be on. So mm. that's, that's what I really love about my life right now. I love sure. that. And then what do you love about yourself? Um, I love that I feel pretty calm in the storm of what human trafficking is because yeah. it's pretty overwhelming. Totally. And so I feel that I have a clear purpose and a clear direction on, you know, things to do to uh, bring justice to victims and to mm -hmm. target and go after traffickers and sex buyers. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. And I remember even when, you know, I knew what you did and I met you and I was like, wow, you definitely don't look like you would be in that. Like nobody would ever know. And that's why I think it's even better because yes. it's like, okay somebody that you would have no idea, but really you're, you're like in the depths of the fight that like most people won't go to. So yeah, thanks first and foremost, because I know it's insane. Um, and then, so I would love to know, I know you shared a little bit about how you got into the police department to begin with, like when you were a little girl, you were just kind of made for it. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think I have the gift of being in the right place at the right time. I inherited that gift from my father, who was also an officer with um, Phoenix Police Department for 26 years, and then another 14, I think, with um, Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. Mm. So lots of experience, big shoes to fill, but he definitely um, was my, you know, my guide and my um, encourager and you know, even though most parents don't want their little girl to grow up to be a police officer, especially <laughs> nowadays, yeah. um, you know, he supported me the whole way. Um, definitely knew from high school, um, even when learning how to drive, I've had incidents where my dad and I would be together and he has that knack also. And so two of us together, we're, we're definitely going to experience some stuff. And so <laughs> I remember being um, you know, in my permit stage, trying to learn how to drive. So he'd come pick me up at the yogurt store I was working at and I would hop in with him and then I could get to drive us home. And I remember we drove past the shoe store and there was an armed robbery that happened right in front of us. Two suspects ran out with a bunch of shoes and jumped in the car with the third guy that was the driver. And, you know, my dad was like, follow that car. <laughs> and I was without hesitation following this car at 16, 15 years old. 
That's and um, ended up, you know, being a good witness and, and um, you know, grabbing the license plate description of the people. And, you know, they ended up taking off, but doing what we can when we're in a civilian capacity. Mm-hmm. And then um, another instance, also when I was learning how to drive, that was probably like the catalyst of wanting to be a cop is um, these things kept happening. Uh, my dad always taught me how to look down alleys. So every time you drive past a street, a neighborhood residential area with an alley, look down because you never know if you're going to see a crime happening. Mm -hmm. And we happened to pass our own alley and we observed two guys jumping um, over the fence um, from our neighbor, our neighbor's house. And so my dad um, basically had me pull up front and he was going to go grab his police radio and, you know, maybe even his handgun. And I, I didn't even think twice. And I drove to the other end to kind of cut them off in the direction they were heading. And then my dad came in from the back. And so we surrounded them. But it was one of those things where I didn't even think anything of what I did, even though it was probably not the wisest, safest thing (laughs) for a 16-year-old to go confront possible adults in an alley, um, hoping that my dad would, you know, but I was his backup. So, you know, (laughs) I had to be there for you, dad. Yeah, I was his backup. (laughs) That's hilarious. Wow. <laughs> so then after that, that's pretty much you're like, okay, I yeah, I'm just like then, made for this. Yeah. Well, the door opened for me. A unique uh, scenario happened where Phoenix Police Department had a cadet program that they kind of revived that they had many years ago. And this was, you know, 27 years ago that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had never had a female. And so I actually was the first female ever for Phoenix Police Department cadet trainee program. And then I have badge number two. Um, and so there was an original five of us that were hired and only two of us made it through the whole two years waiting to be old enough to be an, a sworn officer. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a good time. Wow. Okay. So then, so you went from that and you were obviously in the police force, but then when did you switch into the human trafficking? Because that wasn't what got you into it. Right. So um, after turning 21 in the academy, three weeks before I graduated, I graduated and got assigned to Maryville Precinct. Maryville Precinct is, um, if you're familiar with Arizona, it's in the West Phoenix area. It is mostly residential, but we always joke that that's where all the bad guys live because Mm -hmm. they commit their crimes and then they're heading back to Maryville. And so um, we definitely, uh, you know, I've, I've dealt with shootings and gangs and uh, robberies and, um, you know, drive-bys and all kinds of really violent crimes in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, uh, a few years after being in patrol, I got pregnant with my son and I decided to go try and be a school resource officer for a little while while mm-hmm. my son was a newborn because I wanted to breastfeed um, and then have a normal schedule. So I tested for the position of school resource officer And at that time, um, I got assigned to a school still in West Phoenix and really enjoyed being at the school, was there for my child when he was in the toddler, you know, early stages of his life. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up staying six years. Mm -hmm. So in that whole time, after already being an officer in patrol, then moving to um, SRO is what it's called for six years, I'd already been an officer for a good eight years. Yeah. Six, seven, eight years, somewhere in there. And I remember one day taking the keys to the patrol car, cause we didn't get to take it home, mm-hmm. um, to returning the keys at the police station. And I walked past the juvenile holding area 
And I saw this girl that I remembered <clears throat> from when she was in seventh and eighth grade, um, which is like, I don't know, 13 to 15 ish. And she was about 16, 17 at mm -hmm. the time when I saw her on that day. And I was like, what trouble? Um, and she remembered me and, you know, briefly told me that she was involved in prostitution with her boyfriend. And, you know, being a cop for already, you know, seven, eight years, I was like, wow, what do you mean you as a juvenile are involved in prostitution? Um, and so that's what really got me interested in thinking about what I could do to impact that problem. And so I started transferring, um, doing temporary assignments, temporary transfers to the unit that at the time was called Vice. And that was a unit made up of um, about two, actually they had three squads by then, and it was mostly male detectives with one female on each squad. And they were vacant with a female on the third squad. So I was, I, I applied and got that position to be that third female. Hmm. Um, and it was definitely where it began for me as far as working the human trafficking problem, but definitely I've noticed over the years, cause that was in 2008, mm -hmm. um, how that human trafficking problem has evolved and changed. Hmm. Definitely. Well, how so? Because then would you say, because you said that you were not really even like familiar with it at the time. So was it that nobody in your field was familiar? Like was nobody in the police department talking about it? Were there, was there not really like a, a specific detective doing that yet? Were you basically like the first one that was like, okay, we're going to like, how do you even start? Because then if that's from scratch, like, how do you even yeah so what it was is i don't think it was labeled human trafficking at the time okay. it was prostitution and okay. it was completely um targeting prostitutes and so there were operations mm. where and that's why the purpose of having mostly males was because we would have males uh, pose as sex buyers or johns mm. and they would drive in the known areas for prostitution on the street and they'd engage in conversations with the um, prostitutes that were walking the streets, working the streets. And so that's what we did almost every day is target that there was barely any, um, you know, investigations on the scale that we do now, as far as juveniles being involved, number one, and two being, you know, where it's, um, you know, a, a larger investigation involving going after financials and all the things that it is now. So definitely the evolution of targeting just prostitutes, moving on to seeing them as victims, and then moving on to targeting traffickers. Got it. Okay. So since you've yeah. been a part of it, it's just all evolved, almost yeah. thinking that before it was almost like, okay, the prostitute is the problem. We have to go after them. And then realizing, okay, they're not the problem. Like that is the, um, the, the supply, you know, the demand is, is the pimps or the johns. Um, well, the supply is the pimps or sorry. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the, yeah. So, well, could, for listeners actually, could you just explain a little bit of what human trafficking actually is? Because I think, like I said earlier, a lot of people just think that it's, um, kind of like the movie taken. Right. And there are these extreme cases, but they happen very differently also i mean i'm very familiar with worldwide but then you're very familiar with here in the u.s specifically and oh by the way you're also on um sex trafficking in america that yes. documentary so everybody has to go watch that yes <laughs> so first share what exactly is human trafficking so people actually know 
Yeah. So human trafficking is a crime against a person. And basically when it's a crime against a person, it is a crime of either forced sex or forced labor. And so that is a situation where an individual um, is being, um, it, there's three elements that we can use to prove the human trafficking element, force, fraud, or coercion. So the force would be pretty self-explanatory, a violent act, an assault, that kind of thing. The fraud and the coercion are a little bit harder to prove and harder to explain, but we can recognize those things in the way that traffickers um, treat their victims. For example, if they offer them false promises, um, if they threaten them, those kind of things, we as investigators need to do a good job of describing all of those things to be able to prove the fraud and coercion. Now that's all with an adult as a victim. If it's a juvenile, they're automatically a victim and I don't have to worry about forced fraud or coercion because there is no such thing as a child prostitute. And in fact, we've changed our statute, especially here in Arizona, it used to read child prostitution. And mm. so we've changed the language of that because there is no such thing as a child yeah. prostitute and now it reads child sex trafficking. Okay, okay. Yeah. So I'm curious, like if somebody were to come to you, like here in the US, and you know they're reaching out for help but then there's not really like it's the maybe the pimp or the john you can't get a hold of them um or it's like you know it is hard to detect like what's actually going on but they have been coerced they have been threatened like what do you guys do so it these cases are really hard to prove. Yeah. Um, a lot of times they are the victim's word against the suspect's word. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to have a witness that saw this victim go have sex with somebody, right. make money, and then turn their money over to their trafficker. And so we have to do, um, you know, an investigation where we're looking for cooperative evidence, meaning anything that we can use to give more um preponderance of truth to what the victim is saying versus what the defendant would say and so we can use dna we can mm. use phones we can use hotel records video surveillance other witnesses um you know uh, the advertisements that they're doing online sometimes there's evidence that we can follow mm. to um, gather you know, the behind the scenes, who's controlling things, all mm -hmm. of those things. So mm -hmm. it's definitely really hard. Um, I joke with the homicide detective friend. He says, it, um, and this is the other aspect of it. Yeah. He says, my victims are dead right there. They're not going anywhere. The other part of this whole thing that makes it so hard is our victims sometimes are not willing to play the game of the uh, justice system here in the United States, where a case may take one, two, three, five years to go to trial. Mm. And, you know, I'm telling them, you know, we're going to go, we're going to get you justice. But then they show up to court, it gets continued. And then they show up again, it gets continued. And they really, it's really hard to keep a victim in, um, you know, the position of still wanting to press charges when we are unfortunately going through that whole um, game of the justice mm. system here. So um, there's definitely things that need to change as far as that goes, because a lot of times, and I've experienced this with some of my cases, mm. it is a, a, a tactic on the side of the defense to delay and continue and continue because they're hoping that the victim will fall into another crime, go back to prostitution, mm. will fall into drugs, all the things that could happen to a victim while we're waiting all this long time to go to a trial. Hmm. So what do you think needs to 
change. Well, and I'm not familiar with all the ins and outs, but I, and, and when I'm talking about that cooperative evidence, yes, it takes time, but, um, you know, I don't think it would take years for yeah. me to gather that evidence. And so it, it's, it's just ridiculous that these things take so long yeah. to trial. So for instance, I think in the UK, they have like time limits on that stuff. Mm. And I don't think that we, I mean, we need to implement time limits totally. on some of this because. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the thing, because if on the side of, you know, the one that's being trafficked, like there's so much fear involved, like yeah. they're scared for their life. So it's like, then what do they do? They're freaking out. Do I just like leave the country? Do I this? Do I that? They Like, they're not like waiting around for this thing. So that's why it's like, okay, well, how do you even like keep the person safe? Do you even know that somebody else could be after them? Like those type of things. Yeah, it's definitely, even if we have a suspect in custody, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately they have opportunities now to intimidate witnesses through not only jail calls, jail video visits, but now they have tablets. I've had suspects literally promise to pay someone who's getting bonded out to go harass and intimidate and make a victim oh, scared this. Um, uh, to not testify or cooperate with law enforcement any mm. further. And, you know, those are all real things that even though we think we've got the bad guy in jail, that does not stop the work. Right. And it also doesn't stop the work with, you know, having them be in a safe place. Mm -hmm. There are shelters and, um, you know, places that cater to sex trafficking victims, mm -hmm. adults and juveniles mm -hmm. um, that help get them, you know, an ID because they lost their ID hundred, hundred hotels ago Yeah. or, um, you know, find their birth certificates. They can get a new social security card or get them a job or get them medical attention, get them counseling. So using, um, you know, those placements and all the team of people mm -hmm. in addition to law enforcement is really what we actually need to continue to nurture and, and make sure that that is, um, you know, happening in mm -hmm. every situation, mm -hmm. every state mm -hmm. so that totally. victims can be stabilized enough to go through that trial where they have to sit there and, and identify the suspect and face them in court. Right. Which can be scary. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So do you think that, so if you're, um, you need the help and you go to these organizations and you, of course, don't really have the evidence yet. Like you can get the help, like get all the new, yeah, all those new things. Oh yeah. 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 Even if you're not cooperating with law enforcement and, and aren't pursuing prosecution, you'll get that assistance as an identified yeah. sex trafficking victim. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, that's good. I think it's just good for people to know because once again, you can see cases all over. It's like, where do you go for help? Right. Yeah. So just knowing that every state does have organizations, there are, you know, and that's where all of them have to start working together, but there is a way like through, through that, like to get through. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Okay. What have been some of the most, I guess, like interesting things that you've found in your work that probably most people don't know about? Um, as like trafficking or like a certain case and maybe, you know, sensitive information you don't need to share, but where you're just like, oh, wow. Like, I don't think the world knows, like, this is sometimes how it happens. Like, be aware of this. Yeah, I think, um, and I think it's just coming to light a little bit more with the new stat. And I think it was 42% of trafficking has been identified as familial trafficking. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is definitely 
not discovered yet how much that is going on. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say familial, obviously I'm um, saying, you know, a parent, an aunt, uncle, cousin, older brother, sibling, or even a boyfriend, someone you're in a relationship with is mm -hmm. also familial. So I argue that that stat is probably way higher. Yeah. Um, because especially when we're trying to explain to people that this is not like taken like the movie, mm -hmm. it isn't like that. It is not an abduction. It is more so an individual trying to get to know the victim in order to lure them away from their family or their, their familiar and take them to go where they can control and isolate them and do all the things they do to them. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely um, an interesting dynamic to see that being recognized as a form of trafficking now. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I've known that it's gone on for a long time because I have you know, a big case that involved familial trafficking that started in 2010. Hmm. Um, and that one, you know, was several victims. It's kind of an example case that I talk about frequently because it's, it gives the dynamic of all aspects of trafficking in one case. It's so got, what happened? Yeah, it's got seven victims, two juveniles. Um, basically, it started in 2010. And when I say these cases and I say my and I, it is definitely not me alone. Yeah. I have a whole <laughs> totally. squad of friends and, and uh, colleagues that yeah. help work these cases. And my partner and I work this case together. So it's definitely not me by myself. Um, but we worked this case where this juvenile came forward. Um, in 2010, she was 16. Mm -hmm. She had been with her uncle. Her uncle uh, first offended on her when he had sex with her when she was 13. He um, basically convinced his mother, her grandmother, to have her move down to the Phoenix area because she got in some trouble up north in northern Arizona. And not like huge trouble, like she just was drinking underage. And what mm -hmm. do you do in a small town? Yeah. To get in trouble. <laughs> not a huge deal, but he had an ulterior motive. Got he it. wanted to bring her down to mm -hmm. Phoenix and have her start. Um, he wanted to continue his relationship with her sexually. And then he wanted to have her work in his brothel that he was running mm -hmm. down here in Phoenix out of his house. And so he ended up arranging that. And from about 14 and a half to 16, almost 17, she was in this situation of daily drugs, sex with him, and then being prostituted out of that house, sex wow. with multiple buyers um, coming to the house. And so the interesting thing about this case, besides the fact that it's familial initially, it evolved into, um, you know, five other adult females, one of which was uh, a woman that was a former Department of Corrections officer who what? lost her job, um, got into drugs, became a stripper, met him at the strip club. And then he brought her in when he married her into this situation where she even had her 17 year old daughter living there. And she was also using drugs and doing dates as well. And so the whole thing was going on for a long period of time. Law enforcement, you know, tried to respond. We'd get tips about it. Um, there was one instance where we sent in mail undercovers, but unfortunately no one told us the truth about what was going on. No one disclosed and we don't know what we don't know. And um, we weren't able to discover it until um, when the main victim who was supposed to go do pornography in California um, was unable to go because she tested for something when they tested for um, sexually transmitted uh, infections to go to California. And that's when her uncle, her offender, told her that's okay. 
I'm going to make arrangements to go get your 13 year old sister. So on that day, she's 16. Her little sister is the age that she was when she wow. was first defended on by him. And she was not going to let that happen to her uh -huh. little sister. And so she actually got the courage to call her older sister who barely believed her because he had the whole family thinking she yeah. had a truancy problem and she, you know, was using drugs, marijuana, and, and had them all believing this lie when in actuality wow. he was exploiting her and everyone else. Um, but, but the sister did call and that's what started the whole investigation. So we responded out there um, and we started, you know, looking into the whole case and we discovered this is what's crazy also is that this guy was infatuated with the French pornography book, The Story of O. Mm. And The Story of O um, was kind of like, kind of like a, a fantasy book plus movie about like bondage, the dominant, yeah. the submissive. Um, there were, you know, individuals in the book described being chained up. And so he had done those things to these women. Mm. In fact, the one Department of Corrections officer, she, you know, told me about uh, when we interviewed her, she told us about having a dog collar with a chain and then just enough links to go to the bathroom and back oh to God. the bedroom. Ugh, um, and, you know, this. days she'd be chained up. And, you know, this is a woman in her 40s that entered the life of prostitution um, in her 40s. So um, anyway, all of that to say that he had this fascination with the story of, oh, he had these rings made, which are described in the book. And he had like a we found images of like this ring and then him putting it on each one of his victims, the 17 year old, for example, we found mm -hmm. pictures where he literally had it on the finger, then further on the finger, then a picture of her face, then it all the way on her finger. And then, you know what I mean? Like it was very important to him, mm -hmm. this whole ceremony of, um, you know, these ownership rings is what they were. Wow. He also branded all of the victims with the, the tattoo um, similar to the tattoo he had. And so they all had a version of this spider web tattoo. Um, all of the things that a normal trafficker does, but more with wow. the whole um, aspect of, you know, the, the he had this writing crop with a dildo attached and was, you know, sodomizing them with this uh, writing crop and, and the whoopings with the other writing crop and just all kinds of awful things that as all of these seven victims went through. Oh my God. All of that to say though, the good news is, is that um, we were able to keep those seven victims intact over the five years that it took from the day the 16 year old disclosed till the day we went to trial in 2015. Um, and she was in her twenties when she testified. And so the jury wow. sees a 20 year old instead of the 16 year old. Yeah. But mentally I spent seven months with her and you know, she's definitely, um, she's never had a job and doesn't drive a car and those kind of things because Aww. of what happened to her. Um, but, but all of that to say he was, um, charged with 130 counts of mm. child sex trafficking, dangerous crimes against children, aggravated assault, sex misconduct with a minor, all kinds of charges. In mm. fact, also furnishing harmful materials to a minor because he would have the girls view pornography to teach them how to be submissive, teach them how to do certain sex acts in case a buyer came in and wanted a specific sex act. Um, but basically that all um, went through to 101 counts he was found guilty on mm -hmm. um, after the jury deliberated for four days on all these mm -hmm. hundreds of counts. 
and he was found guilty on 101 and was sentenced to 493.5 years in prison. Let's go. Wow. Goodbye. So, oh, yeah. That pisses me. Like everything in me like boils up when I hear these. I know how real they are because I see them, but it like, it yeah. never gets old. It's just like, are you kidding me? So for you, like, I'm curious about this guy. Do you guys have any idea? Like, did he share anything about why he even did it or? You know, he did testify, but he is so, and this is the other part of this case is, um, I'm, and I skipped over this because I wanted to get to the fantastic ending, but um, the jury, uh, I'm sorry, to pick the jury, we had sequestered, I think 600 jurors. Oh, wow. Because unfortunately in 2015, the book, Fifty Shades of Grey came mm -hmm. out in the oh, movies. Yeah. And so some of the things that he was doing to these women that were in the story of, oh, we're very similar to yeah. what you see in Fifty Shades of Grey. And so finding a jury that found those things inappropriate yeah. to do to women was really hard. Like we had wow. like a whole questionnaire, but we found our jury. Wow. Um, but basically it is, um, you know, one of those things that I like to present on this case. I like to talk about this case, both with civilians that I talk to and mm -hmm. community organizations, as well as law enforcement, because I want people to see both cops and this society that with awareness, we have this incredible opportunity to hold people accountable in that yeah. way. And with good work and good investigation, we have this opportunity to, you know, have traffickers be put away for hundreds yeah. of years. And so inspiring law enforcement to I mean, these cases are really hard. So yeah. inspiring them to want to go ahead and go through all of this. Because yep. I went through a lot with this case. Yeah. Like I traveled to Tennessee, Virginia, California multiple times, up to Northern Arizona, several search warrants on the same type of evidence. Wow. Um, so it's one of those things that um, is very important that we got through to the point of that outcome. Is that, did you travel so much because like, people were moving around or what? Yeah. So we had to find all these seven victims. So we knew of the one and uh, actually we knew of three. Wait, because they'd gotten away? They or... moved away in that time period. And every time that we talked to one victim, we'd learn about another one. Then we try and find them. Then we go, you know, to where they were and interview them. So it was definitely a lot of travel and I've never traveled so much in a, in an investigation like that, but it's also mm -hmm. great that yeah. my police agency sent us, you know, mm -hmm. on the department's dime because they knew how important this investigation was. Totally. I mean, it's a record for the United States. Yeah. Any women, women out there right now that you have a desire so deep in your heart that you want to bring to the world and you don't really know what it is yet, but you're so ready for it. Or you're a woman that already has a business, you have a nonprofit, you have a project that you already have into the world that is bringing purpose and you want to expand that. I have the Dreams to Reality Mastermind that is starting so soon and this is for you. So it is a six month long container and we go from the very beginning of dreaming into the actual reality of either taking that dream to impact the world or taking what you already have and expanding it. We are uh, an incredible community. We're going through the ins and outs of your internal world, healing, as well as empowering you to be the most aligned version of yourself through your body, mind, heart, spirit. And we actually go through all the business principles. So it's half personal coaching, half business coaching of how to actually start, launch, expand that business 
And so it's a play-by-play and it's absolutely incredible. So you can reach out to me, jessdahl.com, or you can go to my Instagram at jessdahl, D-A-H-L with an underscore and reach out because it starts so soon. We have a few spots left. And if this resonates, would love for you to be in it because you have such an incredible purpose on this planet. If you've had a dream in your heart, this is for you. If you know that you're made for more, this is for you. If you're stuck and you feel like, ah, it's just not expanding to the way that I desire, this is for you. And it's time to do this with incredible women that care about you. Wow. So then, um, because I think too, you were sharing about that guy and there was a lot about porn there. And I think a lot of people don't understand the reality of how porn is so destructive. And every time that you feed into it, you're actually helping with this problem. You really are. Because a lot of the people, unfortunately, are like porn industry has run. It's a, you know, I mean, huge multi-billion dollar company. And that's what feeds all of this stuff. So can you share a little bit more about that? Just because I don't think. Yeah, people know. Yeah, I think what porn is and what porn does is kind of like it allows for buyers to fantasize and unfortunately encourages the um, fantasy to become reality when they act on what they're fantasizing about and what they're viewing in the pornography that they watch. And so um, there's a new movie that came out called Wake Up. And that movie is a really good depiction of a buyer, you know, initially locking himself in the bedroom while his wife's making dinner and the little girl comes in and daddy dinner's ready. Are you coming out? And, you know, he real quick gets off the computer, but what he was viewing obviously was um, sexually explicit content and then came into dinner and you see him as the family man. And then it graduates to, he starts looking at prostitution ads And then it graduates to he actually makes a phone call and talks to the girl on the phone. And then it graduates to he has enough courage now to go actually go on a date. And then that situation where he finds a juvenile that he knew was missing from the neighborhood. And that's the girl that he was there to see. And, you know, him coming home and realizing that his marriage, you know, is at risk for his behavior. And then it ends up coming out and then he attempts suicide. So it's all because of that uh, one one viewing of porn um, that resulted in all of these cascading events that happened um, in this movie. And it's, it's reality because that's definitely what happens with these sex buyers. Yeah. Well, and the other side where a lot of the times the people that are doing the porn, they, they don't necessarily want to. Like sometimes they're actually drugged into doing it. Sometimes like, yeah, they're paid big money, but it's not necessarily what they want to do, but it's feeding, you know, that whole thing they have to get people to do these acts and it's actually not always in like the most consensual way yeah absolutely and we don't know that um the people that you're viewing on you know the porn movies or the porn tv shows or even these apps now that are hosting yeah porn at your hand your fingertips on a phone we don't know that those people are there consensually that they're not being you know, held to having to do this by either threats or intimidation or drugs or, mm-hmm. um, you know, what the motivation is. And so we are contri- contributing to their exploitation by doing that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. So, I mean, what would you tell people if they're like, okay, whatever, I just like do porn every now and then. And like, it's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal. Um, and it isn't where it's going to be every now and again, because unfortunately, and that's the thing with um, prostitution also is it is fast money and it mm-hmm. is a lifestyle that gets glamorized by, you know, pimp my ride or pimp my crib or all the right. things on yeah. TV, but really it is not glamorous. It yeah. is not something that people grow up and want to be mm-hmm. involved in and they fall into it. And um, it'll be a matter of time before they realize that that's, that's the road they're on. Yeah. Well, and if you think about it too, I always think about, Cause I used to get so angry at like the men that, you know, are purchasing, buying, doing all the things. And I just was like, I just want to kill you. Like, I want to ram you with a car and I hope you die. Like, that's like literally how I always felt. And then something of course changed me. I still get that way, but something changed me where I was like, Oh, something happened to him or something happened to her. Something happened to this person where they had a situation where who knows, maybe they were, molested as a child maybe they had whatever experience they had and then they're traumatized and then they're trying to fill their own void now and so they're like passing on their own traumas and so I think there's also that place of just realizing that like there is a need to like yes we have to capture those guys but Mm -hmm. there's like a need for honestly like um if more people start doing their own healing, like even early, then it's it stops them from even going down that chain. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I have zero love for sex buyers. Yeah, <laughs> but, no, I mean I have zero love for them too. I just know that they like yeah. something happened to them for them to be that off. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely something going on with them, um, and a lot of times I think also with awareness and with um you know, this interview and other podcasts mm-hmm. that are out there and, you know, presentations and trainings on human trafficking. I think that there is individuals who don't realize how they're contributing to this problem. Yeah. And once they're realized, I hope that that's enough to change their behavior. Yeah. Well, what do you, what do you think like are even the first steps for um, more the people that are like the buyers or the people that are the the ones initiating, you know, the exploitation. Like what what would you tell them? Um, I would tell them that it's not worth it. It's not worth losing the relationship you have potentially with your spouse or significant other. It's not worth it for your kids to hear about it if you get caught. Um and it's not worth it to, uh, you know, lose your job. I and mean, there's so many things that you are putting to chance and risk mm-hmm. over your decision. And um, I would hope that you would make a better decision. Yeah. And then how can people stay safe from this stuff? Because even as you mentioned with that case with like the seven people, and let's talk about specifically to the U.S. because that's what you know, is you know, there's children out there. There's even, um, I mean, even adults, like all that kind of stuff, but like, how do you not get trapped into, into this world? So I think that comes from parents. Parents Mm. need to be vigilant. They need to be knowing who their children are talking to. They need to um, be aware of devices that offer an opportunity for strangers to come into their kid's bedroom 
um, through those devices, through those games, the apps on the phone, the social media, all of those things. And it's going to take parents, you know, looking into what their kids are doing. Um, my son is an adult now, but when he was younger, um, we did get him a phone. And it's one of those things where I always told him there's no expectation of privacy in my house. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take your phone out of your hands. Mm -hmm. I will always know the passcode to it. Mm -hmm. And I will go through it. And if there's something in there that I don't like, we're going to have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, every now and again, I would just take the phone. It wouldn't even be any, you know, circumstance that led to that. It would just be letting him know that at any time I'm going to look in this phone. Yeah. So, um, you know, he tested me a little bit but you know for the most part he knew knew better and knew that he didn't want to disappoint me so mm. it was something that was it was a learned thing that he grew up with sorry the sun is totally mad a learned thing that he grew up with and that it was um something that uh, you know he um he needed to to experience mm. and then what would you say for <laughs> for example like what Cause you mentioned about on the phone and online, like what are some signs people can be looking for to make sure they don't get trapped in it? Cause you could think like, Oh, I'm just talking to so-and-so or yeah, this is normal. Like yeah. yes, everything's normalized, but I think there's signs out there. Yeah. So definitely um, if it is and have this conversation with your child, mm -hmm. if it is someone that's telling them to create a secret profile, one that your mom and dad don't know about, or they're saying, hey, delete our messages because this is our conversation between us and I don't want anybody else to know. If they're encouraging your child to delete things, hide things, that's definitely what they're going to do. Um, and then also as far as the games and, and whatnot, um, have conversations with your child about the fact that these people will try and learn about where they live, learn about where they go to school, learn about what their parents do for a living learn about their siblings and how old they are and, you know, what part of town do you live in? And when, when someone's asking those kind of personal questions, their intentions are not to get to know you. Their mm -hmm. intentions are something else. Mm -hmm. um, and so having them be cautious and suspicious of people doing that mm -hmm. is, is definitely something I would, I would have those conversations. Mm -hmm. And then what about those apps like dating apps and things these days that people are on? And I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's just getting worse with, you don't know who you're really talking to. I hear so many stories. Like, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, for sure, the dating apps, the apps that, um, you know, you swipe right, you swipe left. <laughs> um, it, it, those are all locations where predators, sex buyers and mm -hmm. traffickers are at as well. And so anywhere where you have private messaging that can happen on the computer games, um, I even heard that Life360, some parents have Life360 for their kids as far as finding their location. Mm -hmm. um, that has private messaging. And I've had a trafficker actually use that to message with their victim. Um, anywhere where there's private messaging is, is where trafficking can happen. Hmm. Okay. And then what are you, um, like, what are you looking forward to now like being on the side that you've been in for so long to like bringing more awareness about this to like, what's kind of your mission now, like your personal one with all of this. Yeah. So, um, I retired in 21, October of 21. Um, and so 
uh, after working almost 14 years as an undercover, I have a lot of experience, a lot of mm -hmm. things to share, a lot of stories, things that happen. And I want to continue to share awareness to the community because um, I have an ulterior motive. Every time that I present and do a podcast and those kind of things, I'm hoping to reach potential jurors mm. that will see traffickers um, for what they are and that victims, even though they may have committed a crime, that they are victims. And even though they might be freely walking down the side of the road with a phone in their hand, they are trapped. They're not free to leave. Yeah. And it's really hard to wrap your mind around that concept as a juror. And so having individuals understand as much as they can about what trafficking is and the grooming and the recruitment and all of the aspects of it helps them make the decisions to um, find traffickers guilty and get them, um, you know, put in prison and justice for victims. So that's, that's that side. And then the other side of this is law enforcement, um, training law enforcement, training on undercover operations, training on how to put these investigations together, how to use trauma-informed victim-centered interviews, forensic mm -hmm. interviews with victims, um, interrogating suspects, all of those things. I do classes for law enforcement specific to those um, things because these are, like I said, hard cases and it's hard to keep a victim wanting to press charges um, and, and all of those things that you know we're up against if we could just meet it halfway with the knowledge and the training mm. um, we'll have more successful cases like mine hmm. that's so good okay mm. so all you jurors out there yeah. we need more law enforcement everything a part yeah. of this like it's a it's a real deal um and i know like for myself so um because i got involved in human trafficking when i heard a story when i was about 20 years old about things that were happening in our own backyards. And I was like, there's no way that can happen. It was just this like fire inside of me. I was like, I have to do something about it. And then um, it was around that time I actually had gotten raped by a friend of a friend. It was a whole long situation. Um, but now I kind of have even more empathy because I'm like, I know what it's like to be, you know, abused in some way or to be, taken advantage of or to be, you know, all that kind of stuff when you're essentially a good human in life and like something happens. And so now I can empathize and in a deeper way than I had before. And, um, and I know that you have a little bit of a background with your past. If you want to share a little bit about that, whatever you want to share. Yeah. So, um, I definitely know that, and this, we haven't even talked about this, but we have talked about relationships, uh, specifically familial or a person involved in a relationship mm -hmm. in some way. And in relationships, there are arguments, there are fights, um, but there is also such a thing as domestic violence. And that's something that happens quite often with um, this lifestyle, specifically trafficking. Victims are violently assaulted over breaking a rule or over not doing what the pimp said or um, you know, looking, even looking in the wrong direction of the mm -hmm. trafficker. Um, that's definitely something that um, is relatable to me because I have experienced domestic violence in a past relationship. Um, and it's, it's where, you know, getting in that vulnerable state is not hard, easy to talk about or admit, but um, I've definitely been in that situation before. And, and I think that helps me relate to victims definitely mm -hmm. when they're describing you know their worst day I've mm -hmm. had one of those too yeah totally mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I used to like not bring it up or anything. And now it's interesting to be able to have that moment. And they're just like, oh, you know, they're like, okay, yeah, that happened to me. Or they can like sense like, okay, you've been through some hard stuff too. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what I feel like connects humans as well, where it's, yeah, you know, not just our strength, but in our weaknesses is like, okay, like you've also been somewhere. So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Which most of us, all of us have somehow. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, what are, what's like, I know of course, with the premise of this podcast, say yes anyway. And I know for you, it's like, you could essentially turn a blind eye or go a different direction. Like this is not like an easy road to continue or whatever, but what have been like maybe a major or a couple major, like, okay, like I just have to say yes to this situation or this thing in my life because like, I can't explain it. I just know I need to, like, has there been a couple big moments in your life or a moment in your life that you can think of? Yeah. I think when I retired and I left my, you know, I loved what I was doing. Um, and went to do some other capacity in a lot, a different law enforcement agency. Um, I didn't want to leave it behind. Mm -hmm. And so I started my own business, um, with those two goals in mind, I have a whole online course that I created Mm -hmm. and having that translated in Spanish so that it's available to, um, you know, non-English speaking individuals that uh, need to also learn about trafficking. And then an opportunity recently came about where I was able to get back into working again mm-hmm. uh, with human trafficking and um, in a capacity that covers the entire state. And so I said yes to that opportunity, which awesome. I could have turned down, but I know that I'm not done doing what I was doing before. And I'm very excited to have that opportunity to um, you know, go after some more traffickers and get some victims some justice and, and hopefully do even bigger investigations involving, um, you know, what we as law enforcement also have been evolving into is everything that the traffickers are doing, Mm -hmm. all the money they're making, they Mm -hmm. do not have real jobs. Their job all day long is to manage the victims they have and seek out new ones. Mm -hmm. They're not going to work. Their work is finding victims and exploiting victims. So um, what we have done also law enforcement is evolved into bigger investigations going after money laundering, illegal enterprise, mm-hmm. and really seizing assets, taking their, you know, Gucci purses and their Louis Vuitton shoes and their big blinged out necklaces and their bank accounts and their cars and all those things that were earned illegally because mm-hmm. all of the money that they earn with no legitimate income is all not money that was earned uh, legitimately. And so going after them for those bigger investigations um, going after traffickers that are working together, going after traffickers that portray to be something else, like rappers on YouTube, mm. um, you know, even the ones with the followers. Um, it's unfortunate that uh, people don't look into the individuals that they kind of put on a pedestal. Yeah. And they're, you know, behind the scenes. Who was actually. it that we were watching the other day? <laughs> we were yeah. like, uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> yeah. What was it? It was oh, it was iced tea, I think. Oh, okay. Ice tea or ice cube, like yeah, one of that. But yeah, iced tea, yeah. Or ice cube. Yeah, we were like, uh-uh, not no, happening. Yeah, definitely got a past in what I would think would be along the lines of being a trafficker. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, are there any other like specific stories from your detective years that 
stand out to you? Um, I don't know that are just like really interesting for people to know, like any, any story that stands out. Yeah. So, um, as far as, like I described, we've evolved and we initially were targeting victim or prostitutes, not seeing them as victims. And now we're trying to treat them as victims and Mm -hmm. repair that relationship because we were doing exactly what their trafficker told them that we would do. We were arresting them. And now we're trying to repair that relationship. Mm. However, at the same time, I have had instances where I've had a victim that, um, you know, we rescued. Yes, they were a juvenile. Now they're an adult. Um, we had them safe. We legally helped them change their name. They were put in a placement. They were on a track to be a successful contributing member to society. And then they chose to go back to that lifestyle. Mm. And at that point, they now become a you know non-victim because they mm. chose to go back to it. It's not where they were forced or coerced or frauded. They chose to go link up with another trafficker and and go back to that lifestyle. And you know that's what's really heartbreaking to oh, me because so um, you know I spent almost four years with this juvenile that became wow. an adult, testified against her trafficker and everything, wow. and then for her to make that choice to go back to the lifestyle. Um, you know, that's one of those things where that shows a lack of in the resources somewhere along the way. She did not get the resource of counseling or yep. um, psychology, something that yeah. would have been able to um, treat that mental illness part as, yeah. far, as far as going back to that lifestyle. Yeah. No matter all the stuff that happened to her and she's had so much oh. happen to her. Yeah, wow. But she still went back. Wow. And unfortunately, I had to arrest her um, right before I retired uh, multiple times. Wow. After she knows who I am, I know who she is. I've spent hours with her over the years. And for her to kind of slap me in the face and go back to that lifestyle was oh, really, that's really hurtful. Oh, so hard. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of, um, I was chatting with uh, somebody who's a friend now when I was over in Thailand. And they they've got rescued they've been through the like training different healing um all that kind of stuff but then it was like they had a choice where after they were done with like skill like trade school after they were done with like a year of like some healing all that stuff of okay now are you going to go ahead and do this new life really and like go do the career that you chose go like da 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 and and they told me they were like, you know, I really struggled because I was like, I could go back and like, it could be kind of easier because I know that life, like the other life I don't know. And, but I know it over here and like it, it could be easier money. It could be easier, like whatever, where, um, that's where once again, what you talked about like that, it's more the internal thing. Cause it's like, even if you have all the resources and the stuff, there's that internal, healing the you know your mental state all that kind of stuff and your worth to be like oh no I there's no way I'm going back there because otherwise it can be the same cycle like knowing and that's what's hard is you know you wonder why with even different people in abusive relationships like why do they keep going back to this and it's really like that's that's really what they know and so sometimes it feels unsafe to get out of something that doesn't isn't what they know and that feels more unsafe so it's, it's like the, the whole person really has to 
like be addressed all these resources the yeah. internal everything yeah and it's really hard too when you have a person who can make two hundred dollars in 30 minutes and then you tell them but here's a minimum wage job mm-hmm. over here and you are entering into that because you have no life experience yeah. other than being involved in prostitution but you need to go work your ass off yeah doing minimum wage um and you know for them to not see that as you know, totally. the better path to go on is, is really hard because that, that's, that's so an hard. addiction also. That Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such an addiction. Yeah. There's a whole rewiring. It's like, you know, obviously on the side of if you've never been through it, you're like, oh, of course I would never get into that or like do that life. But then you're in it and then that's what you know. And it's like, okay, this actually isn't, Yeah, you know, so it's, Anyway, it's it's wild, but yeah. at the end of the day, the whole person has to be addressed for sure. And we need more people helping with that. We need yes. more more people like bringing awareness about it, organizations working together, police enforcement working together. Um, is there anything that you want that you would love people to know for themselves, like what what they can actually do? Because I think a lot of times it's like, okay, well, that's the job of the organization. That's the job of police enforcement. That's the job of somebody that like really knows what's going on, but everybody can be a part of it somehow in this fight. Like what, what would you tell people? Yeah. And especially with people who have recently seen Sound of Freedom, Mm. lots of people are fired up about human trafficking, which is, you know, wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, It's in everyone's minds and they're wanting to know about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously there's several things I would suggest, uh, learn all you can about it. Um, and then if you want to get involved, don't think that, um, just like I'm not a doctor, I'm not going to show up at the hospital and say, Hey, I'm here for surgery. I'm going to go ahead and perform surgery. Cause I don't think you're doing a good enough job. Don't try and be a vigilante and be doing your own undercover operations yeah. on social media, because we just recently had an incident where an individual was murdered over showing up and trying to catfish a child predator. And the influencer got murdered because um you know that that you that's unsafe we would as officers never go do that wait what was he trying to do exactly confront a child predator that who was uh, messaging with and filming it on instagram so that everyone could see and he ended up getting murdered oh shit yeah i mean that's the vigilante stuff that's one example of a lot of vigilante yeah, stuff. Don't be a detective. you know if you want to be in law enforcement you want to go after human trafficking go to the police academy <laughs> put your time in and patrol and do it um the way that everyone else has to do it yeah you know just like i'm not going to show up to surgery and and perform a surgery like a doctor yeah. so um there's ways though to get involved other than that as far as after learning all you can about it google uh, anti-trafficking organizations in your state. There are many, many, many states. Um, we've already outlined several issues that need someone to be there for, like mm-hmm. the aftercare, the placement. Um, there's a lot of people that do tattoo removal mm-hmm. to help remove those brands. Yeah. Um, help with that. Help with um, you know, donating items. Like when I recover a victim, sometimes the only thing we have on is the slinky dress they're wearing, the heels, the wig, and their phone. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the property that they're worried about when I'm talking to them about what happened to them is their toiletry bag and their shoes and a couple of pairs of underwear back at the hotel. That's all the property they have. And I have been fortunate enough to work with the law enforcement agency that 
um, worked with community groups and mm -hmm. we had people donate backpacks full of underwear um, in different sizes. And mm -hmm. so we put the backpacks together, uh, hoodies, leggings, yeah. flip flops, hairspray, hairbrush, hair ties, toothbrush, toothpaste, mm -hmm. the basics. Mm -hmm. And that was more property that I could offer to a victim than they have. And they were worried about back at the hotel room. Yeah. And so it takes community organizations or volunteers or people to put those, you know, victim packages together mm -hmm. for us to be able to hand them out and to be able to um, reinforce that rapport that we were building with the victim and have them worry less about the property that they're leaving behind and, and giving them an opportunity and things to own themselves mm -hmm. to take with them on their new life. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's one other thing that I would definitely definitely do awesome yeah and if anybody's wondering like where to donate um because i do have a an organization we provide like all like wellness and healing modalities to those that are are healing and getting out of this um reach out to me jess doll at oh no jess at jessdoll.com <laughs> and then we can collect resources and things like that um, but again, whatever area you're in, like she said, there are incredible organizations around, but we'll take care of you if you want to participate in donating anything or even directing you in the right direction. We could do that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, where can people find you? So I don't know if they can see that back there, <laughs> but when I, uh, retired, I started my business, a chance for awareness.com. And so that's where I have my course and I have a blog and I put, um, you know, links to interviews like this. So hopefully I can link this interview onto my website um, mm -hmm. and then just uh, info at a chance for awareness.com with my email. So good. Mm -hmm. And then um, if uh, let people know too, that you're open for speaking engagements and who for, because we want to get more of this out there. So let them know. Yeah. So um, I have a section on my website about um, work with me or book a call so that we can talk about your event. Um, I'm available to do presentations. Obviously um, there's a fee associated with that because I have to take off work to go do those things. Um, and then obviously travel. Um, but I do like to share the awareness. I have several presentations I do, and my presentations always include a case study because I want people to see, um, you know, the story behind this issue and how um, positive outcomes like, you know, uh, traffickers going away into prison for hundreds of years actually happen quite often. So I have multiple case studies that I present on to re-illustrate the points of my presentation. So. Mm -hmm. That's great. That, and I'm on Instagram as well. That a chance one. for awareness. Um, but it, there's an underscore under each. So a underscore chance underscore four underscore awareness. <laughs> My Instagram. And then LinkedIn is huge too. LinkedIn is um, uh, has been really good for me as far as getting information out there regularly and especially with law enforcement. Great. And that's Heidi Chance? Yep, just Heidi Chance. Okay, great. And then, um, so you really, I believe you are a gift to this world. And if you would say for yourself, like if you were a gift to the world, what would you be? If I was a gift to the world, hmm, yikes, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think, I think what, what, with what we started with, as far as um, I've always been level and made good decisions. And, you know, I think that's what 
puts me in this position to be in this world of trafficking and fighting this world of trafficking is mm -hmm. the gift of, you know, making the right decision, mm. whether it's hard or not, mm. um, and, and helping people see the right decision. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Love it. Hi. Yes. <laughs> Any last words you want people to know? Um, just that, um, you know, it, it, and I know that people have said, victims get irritated with see something say something because it might put them in a position that they don't want to be in but I literally have had victims at the same time say I was at a bus stop in the middle of broad daylight getting whooped by my trafficker and no one called the police no mm. one said anything no one did anything mm. and they just kept walking on by and I'm just blown away by that that that, that whole direction that we're going mm. in now with people either breaking out their phone or completely ignoring a problem rather mm. than being a good witness and reporting it is, you know, I don't know where we've been lost in that, but we yeah. need to get back going the other direction with, you know, if you see something, say something, just yeah. like in the airport with an unattended bag. Yeah. If you see a victim that, you know, looks like a juvenile and it's, you know, after 10 o'clock at night and they're out walking and yeah. provocatively dressed, call the police, provide a description of what they look like, yeah. last seen direction, you know, those kind of things. And, and, you know, that's what 911 is for. Yeah. So they'd call 911. If it's like that, where it's like happening right now mm -hmm. and, you know, this person's actively walking away, that would be a crime in progress potentially. And so, yeah, 911, local law enforcement would be the call for that. There is the National Human Trafficking Hotline mm -hmm. also. Um, that one is more for survivors who may or may not want law enforcement involvement, which we totally understand. Um, so they would call the National Human Trafficking Hotline but if you're reporting it from like the outside looking in, I would call law, local law enforcement because even if you called the National Human Trafficking Hotline, they're going to contact the local agency and then they're going to find the detective. And so there's a delay in that mm -hmm. getting to where it's actually going to get investigated. So mm -hmm. just to bypass all of that, mm -hmm. I would say local law enforcement. Great. Love it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. This was great. I feel like we can go on forever. Yeah. And maybe we'll do another one again. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Thank, thank you so you. much. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Wasn't that incredible? I seriously can't wait for you guys to share. So share this with a friend if this impacted you in some way. Also, take action. This is not just something to be inspired by, but truly to take action on yourself. Like myself, when I was 20 years old and I didn't really know what to do, I went looking for an organization. When I found one, I said, yes, I'm in. And it's, it's, I've been doing it ever since. And it's changed my entire life and trajectory of life. So you don't know what is possible. Just do something because you can't turn your, your ears anymore, <laughs> your eyes, you know, it's very real. So anyway, share this with a friend, um, tag me on social media at Jess underscore and then at a chance for awareness with all those underscores. Yes. And then we'll share it out there. And yeah, we can't wait to see you at the next one. So thank you so much.